Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Richard Listens podcast. I'm Richard Olberger, clinical psychologist, and glad to be able to share with you the world of those who perform well under stress, teach us about resilience and strength, and share their experiences with us about how they've overcome to put more out there to the world. I'm Richard Olberger, and today we have our guest, Mr. Joey Dumont. His career as an advertising executive started in San Francisco. He was a partner, managing director, and led business development teams for nearly two decades. He served as an executive producer on the Naked Brand documentary, a film that chronicled the needed evolution of consumer brands and their advertising agencies due to the advent of social technology and a shifting cultural landscape. In 2017, he took a break from his career to write a book called Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. Forgive my language. Uh, he explores the heavy topics of parental neglect, arrogance, insecurity, anxiety, and episodic depression through the lens of dark humor and self-depreciation. He's also launched a podcast called Laugh Your Cry Out, where he invites his guests to share their own stories of a less than optimal childhood and where nothing is off limits. Without further ado, we welcome Joey Dumont. A couple months talking. Welcome, Joe. Sorry to cut you off there. Thank you for no, joining okay. us. So which uh, we were just uh, chatting offline in the green room. <laughs> Where are yes. you now? Are you in Austin? Are you in LA? Or I'm in Austin, in Texas. I'm at my in-laws home. So my wife grew up in Austin, Texas, at least high school years. She grew up in New York City originally. And uh, her and her sisters, well, actually her sisters and her parents all live in Austin. So we haven't been able to see them because of COVID. And uh, we're still paranoid to put our kids on planes. We would get on planes now that we're vaccinated. But so we took an RV trip for the first time and it took eight days to drive here. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was genuinely one of the greatest joys of my life. It was absolutely wow. amazing. And I'm really high maintenance. So <laughs> to be clear, that's what my mother's like. I can't believe you're going in a camper, Joel. And I was like, All right, mom, it's I'm <laughs> old now and I'm patient and I'm with my three favorite people. So it was it was fantastic. Wow, I need the manual. You could write like a camper van for dummies book. And I would I would totally it's buy it. Actually almost idiot proof. So because I am, as I mentioned in, in some jest, I am very high maintenance. My old joke was that if I was roughing it, it was a hotel without room service. That was kind of my thing. <laughs> I'm but with you. The, they have it down to a science now. We rented an, an RV. It was a 25 footer and has everything in it. Refrigerator, shower, has three beds. It's relatively comfortable. And you know, when you're with your family, I have a nine and a seven year old little boy boys. And uh, so it was great, you know, campfires and s'mores and, and playing cards and board games and watching movies uh, in the camper was fantastic. It was, and we missed the heat wave by a week. <laughs> that sounds so, like the best, right? Cause I have, a, we have like five friends that moved to Austin in the pandemic. And I think they're like, it's too hot. We're moving back. Oh, it's Africa hot. And, and on the way here, we were in the Grand Canyon. We went to a lot of the parks and uh, it was only 75 in Grand Canyon when we were there last week and, or two weeks ago. And now last week it was 107 or something. And then in, in Death Valley, it was 130. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, crazy, crazy. Wow, I could, I could just have the whole show about you talking about the RV trip. I love that. <laughs> I got like the response from you about this podcast. You're like, <laughs> I think I got reception for five minutes here. So just- yeah. 
That was it. I was I was responding to you. I think when we I had some Wi-Fi at whatever KOA that we were at. So yeah. so this is beautiful because it's always like you know there's a topic and then there's a topic within the topic and here we are like coming out of COVID. I just dropped my daughter at the airport this morning for her first camp experience, nice. uh, which was interesting. Like the you know through the masks and then telling us like telling her not to take off her shoes. That was like right. You know it, it was she? she's twelve. Okay. But she's awesome. a twin. She's a twin. And so it's like, it just has not been like, it's unfortunate, but because like they're into different things, she's chosen to stay more landlocked with her mom. She kind of likes it when I take the boys out, like, so she, but in, in the, and then COVID happened when she's probably wanted to be out exploring and seeing the world. Yeah. So this is yeah. kind of cool. This is her first experience with that. And like the parents was so funny, like the, the group of parents are like a bunch of sixth graders now because we're all like it's an awkward enough time as is to launch your children to let go or know how to step back and do you take the awkward airport yeah. photo or do you just like hands off <laughs> <laughs> you know it's hard enough and let, let alone like we're all one of the dads as an attorney next to me was like I think we're all traumatized and I was like uh-huh you know like I know I see it in my practice but like we don't know what's next we know we're kind of things are reopening rebeginning but we all went through something didn't we <laughs> we did we did and you know as a therapist i think that that the re-entry is very difficult for everyone on every front not only the kid but the parent and how do we approach it without anxiety and are we doing it too fast and you know it's it's all those yeah. things we don't have and an i read somewhere to. recently of course we know it and then hearing it was different but that transitions of any kind are traumatic Correct. You know, so I mentioned the sixth grade one, probably I'm revealing my own, right? Going to that new school, going to a big building, being like, uh-oh, who's my friend? Who do I grab onto? Oh, what yeah. group am I in? <laughs> That's tough. I remember doing that in high school. I went to three different high schools because we moved around a lot. And so when you enter a new high school, you got to look, all right, who are the cool kids? Who are the kids you need to be away from? And who are the, you know, there's all these different factions and cliques. And so which one were you? Were you, the, were you the comedian then? I've always, I've always gotten through humor or gotten through my life with humor, but I was a jock. So it helped because when you go to a new school, you just jump on a team. And when you jump on a team, you make Instant friends. inclusion. <clears throat> yeah. So that helps a lot. If you're not, if you're, if you're uh, an introvert and at, let's just say even in addition to being an academic, as an example, it's very, very, very different path uh, trying to integrate into different schools. So how did you arrive in the world of, you know, you were, you were in the business world, um, producing, got a documentary out there and then yep. and moving it now into, into podcasting and getting to some of the stuff I probably talk about, attachment wounds, childhood, yeah. right? Some of the, the good nitty gritty stuff that, that I hope everyone is looking at right now. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, I've always been uh, into the creative world. I was in the in the business world, I was in the advertising business. So I worked at ad agencies for the last 20 years and, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time because you're with super creative people on every front. You have the creative people on the design side, you have the technologists, you have the strategists, you have the project managers, you have the client people. And all of those wonderful creative people work together in unison to develop a campaign, a story for a client to tell the world, hey, this is what your brand does and what it represents. And this is why people need to buy it. And I loved that. And then in 2017, I decided to write a memoir 
for a sad reason, one of my best friends was killed in a car accident. And his wife called me and asked me if I would write the eulogy and deliver the eulogy to a very sad church. And she said, I would really like you to make it Joey funny. Can you just bring your humor to the church? It's a dark day. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I sat down to write the eulogy in my mom's house in Minnesota, which was next door to Jay, who was my buddy who was killed. And as I started to write the eulogy, I, I was thinking first and foremost about his wife and his children. He had two kids, 19 and 21, and they knew who their daddy was. He was a doctor of molecular biology, and he was on the soccer team for the church, and he was the kindest human being in the world. And I decided, like, you know what? If the same fate were to befall me, my little boys, who at the time were six and four, they wouldn't know who I was. They would hear from my buddies that I was, you know, an ad guy and that I was a good storyteller and that I was funny and that I was kind of a clown. And my wife would say, you know, your daddy adored you and he coached your teams and all of that, but they wouldn't know about my decades long struggle with insecurity and specifically my upbringing with my father who happened to be a sociopath. And so what I want to do was pen all of these insecurities so that my little boys at some time in the future would be able to read and understand like, oh, this is how you grew up and this is how you see the world and this is how the world uh, enveloped you. And it was written in a very witty, self-deprecating manner. The first four chapters are pretty heavy because my little brother died from depression in 2007 and it was in part due to my dad's abuse. And my stepfather was a raging alcoholic. He was also abusive. And so the first four chapters are a bit heavy, but then the next 20 chapters, I actually just point to me and rip on me <laughs> for being a knucklehead. And it was very cathartic in the sense that I went to a lot of therapy. I went to someone of your ilk and spent eight years on a couch unwinding, unwinding all of this rage and turmoil and sadness. And she was great. So I think that was the, the reason that I started to explore this path. You know, in my mid fifties, it's one of those things where I wanted to do something for someone else. Everything in my life to date has been very transactional. And we, my wife and I are in a position today now that I could take this time off and figure out what I wanted to do. Now that said, I told her I was going to take a year off for my career. And the book was so shitty after the first year. I, <laughs> I said, babe, I'm going to need more time. And uh, that was four years ago. We published wow. it in April, but it's out now. And, and uh, it's been great. It's, it's been a, it's, it was my next piece of creative content that I wanted to give to the world. And, and now I'm going to go out and promote that for the next year or so. And this is the life and times of a recovering douchebag. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can say it without flinching. We can do it. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I've been called a douchebag and my wife hates the word and my mother thinks it's dirty. So all those pieces and parts actually made it possible that there's no way I was changing the title. Every time I told someone that the book is called Joey, somebody, the life and times of a recovering douchebag and people either love it or hate it. And coming from the ad world, you need polarization. It means something's right. It just means you're not going to connect with everyone. And that was the, that was the idea. Yeah. And there's some value in, in doing a lot of men's work and, you know, in calling it out, calling it for what it is that, that at times we are just right we're jerks, we're, we're, the, we're using the anger mask or whatever mask Correct. we are holding on and projecting to the world for the sake of being professional because we don't want people to know that we're wounded or we've had those kind of parent figures and 
what we're enduring. We don't want anyone to see that we are wounded. So yeah, what they get is something that, you know, we're not always proud of. No. Um, and, and to your point, anger is a, is emotion that's acceptable to be masculine, right? So there's a big difference between being emotional. And if you, if you weep because you had a bad day at the office, that's not going to be well received by your colleagues, especially your male ones. And that was one of those things I did explore in the book. One of the major threads in the book was what does it mean to be a man today? And what I learned from my father and my father's father was incorrect. <laughs> Let's just say that. And then what the societal constructs continue to propagate as a culture are incorrect, right? We learn, and because I had an absent father for my first 10 years, or excuse me, first 14, was I looked at the media for what it meant to be masculine. And so you get that through movies and television shows and, and neighbors and people like that. And my mom always says, well, your grandfather was a good man. I'm like, he really was. He was amazing. He was quiet and dignified. He was a farmer. And it was just, that's not, I didn't have enough of him, I guess, for that to happen. So I would witness movies like James Bond, which as a, as a young kid, you know, you're looking like, oh man, I want to do that. I want to be handsome. I don't want to wear tuxedos and drink a shaken martini and drive an Austin Martin and wear an Omega watch. And that's who it was. He was a solitary figure. He was macho. He was stoic. And that's who you want to be. And then even if you start to categorize television at the time, for me growing up in the seventies and eighties, there were shows like Magnum PI, right? Which it's hard to be more masculine with a bigger mustache than Tom Selleck, <laughs> right? So, and, and by the way, he's 6'4 and handsome and he drives a Ferrari and his best friend TC drives a helicopter and they were ex-army buddies. And you're like, okay, because could anything be more macho? And it's like, no. And so you're like, I want to be that dude. And, you know, I'm 5'10 and a buck 70. So I wasn't going to be him on the physical front. I'm not brave enough to join the military and I can't grow a mustache. I mean, very few people can grow a mustache like that, but he was an example. Uh, Patrick Swayze was an example in the movies. I wanted to be, you know, like him, the roadhouse, cooler, you know, Kung Fu, quiet, solitary figure. And so growing up with these false beliefs of what it meant to be a man, I wanted to weave that into the narrative because what I'm actually doing now, and I've witnessed some of your podcasts that talk to the subject as well. I think if memory serves as a, a fellow colleague of yours, I think is Michael Dickerson who talked yes. about what it means to be, uh, what, is, what is the definition of masculinity? I can't remember the actual title, but it explored this very topic. And so I was like, oh, I want to, when I talk with Richard, you know, I want to make sure that we focus on the subject because to me, there's dire consequences happening in our culture today, specific to men's mental health, because we have unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a man. If you're not a military hero, if you're not a captain of industry, if you're not athletic, if you're not tall, dark and handsome. Are you masculine? And if you're not, what does that mean? And how do we internalize that, what that means about us as men? Correct. There's a wonderful book on that subject uh, by a young lady named Liz Plank, who's now an MSNBC contributor, but she was at Vox when she wrote the book. And she asked those same questions. And in her own, re in her own research, she found out that a lot of incels which are involuntary celibate men are struggling with that exact problem because they don't fit the criteria we encapsulate as a culture, they suffer. And then that suffering turns into rage. And that rage sometimes comes into the form of mass shootings and 
you know, bad things that are happening on that front. So yeah, it's, it's a big thing. And that's actually what I want to do with, uh, with the book and the podcast is explore these ideas around masculinity and mental health and, and the media, because that's actually, I'm part of the cause. So I can, right. I was going to say advertising too, right. Is like, well, we, we use behavioral science to help our stories connect to consumers. Right. And we do that in every area, good and bad. And I think that the masculine piece, which you've touched on in your, your own practice is it needs a change. We need to revisit what it means because it's affected everybody. If you're not a man, you're married to one, or you have a brother, or you have a son, or you have a cousin, or you have somebody in your life that is dealing with this. And if we are not, and even today, you know, with COVID, you look at the massive unemployment that has taken place. Sadly, it's been more, uh, prohibitive to females because more of them stayed home with the kids. Um, but the unemployment as an example is difficult for men, specifically how I was brought up in Minnesota. A men, men provide, that's what they do. That's your first job. And if you can't provide, then you're not masculine. And if you're not masculine, again, you start to go into those pieces and, and, and historically when men are underwater with anxiety, they kind of cope with the same things that other men do. It's alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and avoidance, you know, versus going to a therapist and saying, I'm scared shitless. <laughs> the world is daunting and I don't know what to do with it. Right. I think that's, that's a big, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's interesting. It came up. I got a, a call from a divorce attorney this morning about doing a podcast and we were talking about you know, what, what would happen if somebody brought up what they were struggling with sooner or like what, if we could pre, you know, T minus X amount of time that you could prevent divorce if you were to say you were struggling in one area of your life before it was masked by other behaviors that led to conflict, things like that. So it was interesting and it got me to thinking about uh, my father who was in the real estate business and lost it, lost his career, um, you know, it was all he knew and he, and he collapsed into just a very deep depression. And the irony about, you know, the loss of the guy with the suit and tie and getting the tickets to sporting events in New York City is that the man he was behind that, who was a man who greeted all my friends, who basically was an armchair therapist without a college degree. He didn't mind. He greeted every single friend of mine that came to the house. He made them feel important. He took time. And he went on to sell cars and he loved the car. You know, he loved, he loved family, selling a family a car and trusting and getting into the story. And the truth is, I don't think I would have looked at him any, you know, differently. I would have looked at him, you know, with the great, the same amount of pride if, you know, if he owned his love rather than buying into the story about what it meant to be doing a job he didn't love. And of course, we like you said, we get this information later. We get this information that's incomplete, uh, and and we can only imagine the pressure to try and provide or be more coming from immigrant families. A lot of the pressures that we see, right? The stories we tell about why we need to go after more money or have more things, and and where depression comes into that. Um, yeah, and and that's a big piece that we're not talking about as a culture, which. There's a tsunami of anxiety and depression hitting our culture as we speak. 
and in part due to unemployment and or feeling less than. And then the narrative itself is poisoned even further by the fact that people talk about people aren't willing to work because they're being paid unemployment benefits. Like you're really missing the point, guys. It's not a matter of, of course, there's people that are taking advantage, right? That's just human nature. There's always going to be fringe. But what we do know objectively and scientifically is that people, men and women, need to work to feel purpose, to feel like they're doing something. And it helps them, it helps their mental health. It helps their physical health. It helps their spiritual health. It helps it all. And, and that's, that's a discussion that historically women would talk to other women if they lost their job and they would share with their friends, maybe over Rosé, <laughs> right? I don't feel good or I'm scared or I lost my job and I'm really, guys don't historically call up their mates and like, hey, dude, I'm shit in the bed right now. I'm so scared. You know, it doesn't happen. And one of the really cool nuggets that has taken place since I published my book eight weeks ago is I've had about, thank you, about 35 conversations with guys, some of them from high school, who we have a very different path. I grew up in a very rural area called Santa Rosa, which is Northern California, lots of cowboys, just wonderful dudes, right? And wonderful women. I, I love all these people that I went to high school with. And some of those cats called me. And after they read the book, like, man, Joey, I had no idea. And I'm like, of course, you know, I'm not going to put all of that out there. Uh, where I have anxiety and episodic depression and things like that. But the bigger surprise for me was my buddies in the media world, guys that I grew up with in the last 20 years, hung out with at conferences and events. When you see each other, it's all puffery, right? It's like peacocking and you're like, dude, how are you? And you shake hands hard and you hug hard and you're like, how's it going? I'm fucking killing it. How are you doing? Fucking bull me too, rah, rah. And, and that's, because we were, you know, we were in the media world together. We shared deals together. We shared leads. We, sh you know, we worked on campaigns together. And so we were all intimately involved in some very cool storytelling. And we all made a lot of money in the process. And then when you, you reach those heights, you're going to fall. It's just going to happen some, at some point. And so the guys that I talked to either went through a really tough divorce, got laid off, went to a couple startups that didn't do well. And now they're in their mid fifties and they're starting to feel it, right? Like, holy shit, I'm not going to get the next job because there's a 35 year old out there who's as astute as I am possibly and will work for less and or is more networked than I am. And, or by the way, doesn't have a family yet and isn't overly concerned about taking time off for soccer practice or being a coach or spending time with my wife. It's, it's those kind of concerns. And I had, I never had those conversations with these guys before when it was really cool. It was that was the biggest and most welcome surprise from the publishing of the book was the fact that I laid out my vulnerability on paper, allowed my buddies to do the same thing. And it was, and it's, it continues to this day. I still have, you know, DMS and texts and phone calls. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's tremendous act of leadership and it's, it's, it's hard because when we're vulnerable and put ourselves out there, if others aren't ready, it's hard, right? It's, yeah. it, it's, it can yeah. be a really risk. So, you know, I found, you know, I regularly recommend for the men I work with to get involved in a men's circle or some sort of a practice that gets you with others who are willing to be accountable and willing to live according to a little bit higher standard. And that's not in terms of higher standard performance. That just means, hey, if I'm just like you'd see in a recovery-based program, if I'm not feeling well, I'm willing to take give a call. I'm willing to let other people know. I'm willing to let other people support me. 
right? Yeah. That's the one term I always picked up from a lot of the recovery where are you supportable? Are you willing to let yeah. other people be there for you? And so it's profound that when you, by writing this, you're getting this reaction from others that are like, wow, like that must've been a tremendous act of safety and trust to put that yeah, out Yeah, I think there. that's what it was. And, you know, because you do this for a living and you've done the homework, it, you know, my question back to you is, is that typical? Is that when you do read a book from someone that you know and trust that kind of expresses, hey, this is who I am, this is the real me, you know, taking off the, the persona, is that typical? Do people then say, oh, if you share it, I can share it back? Is that part of the give and take? I think the- that's what they call, they have a, you know, they have a, mo- a model in the VA called disarming and empathy. And I always was like, well, you're disarming them from what? <laughs> right? Well, you're disarming from the story. You're disarming from the mask, right? When, when right. someone comes to work with you, even like veterans, right, will sometimes say, well, you're not a veteran. Or sometimes I'll get on my initial client consult and they'll look for one reason why they couldn't make it to the first session or one thing they disagreed with and that's the line in the sand so i think a lot of times there's that's the way we're hiding behind our anxiety and depression we get lost in the content we get lost in we're filtering for reasons not to trust with other men so when someone you know especially from childhood right or from earlier in life who you've already pegged as safe comes out there and is vulnerable, I think it pierces through the layers. I mean, the fact that it's, you know, so, and I think that's the beauty of you having a podcast and me having a podcast. Um, You know, I've had Kevin Connors, ESPN anchor on a few times. He's my high school basketball teammate. And he's very open about like, he was just a kid who liked to do the morning announcements, you know? And I think when you talk like, to me, that's the most brilliant thing, right? You look at him, he's polished, he's on TV in a suit and tie. You see, right? You know, first of all, people don't realize like they're doing five hours of research before they even go in the air. Exactly. But, you know, there's hard work, but it's also like, you know, there's just a guy who wanted to get up there, who came from multiple sibling family, probably was, you know, got to find a way to to steal this. Get some attention. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We all have that, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you highlighted that timeline, because we we also, my friend group lost a friend to suicide four years ago. And I think that it highlighted, all of us were like, hey, you live in a different city or you're in business and I'm in mental health. And like, yeah. there were these weird lines of like, uh, eh, I'm not gonna make an effort. Like what, a passing text once in a while. Like th- there was really little energy into staying connected. Yeah. And when we lost our friend, I think it, then put the spotlight on the survivors and we meet every year and and it's kept, it's reignited the friendships. I think it's reignited the awareness of what it means to be connected and to kind of keep looking for those around you that could be struggling and suffering. So it's given a little bit more purpose to the relationships too. Like, oh, we're just in each other's lives because we shared a homeroom or a sports team, uh, you know, or are we in each other's lives because, right? that's my brother who I went through an experience with and I want him to be able to call me if something's, something's going on. No, like, I want him to know, fantastic. I want him to know what, that I am wounded. When I can say I'm anxious and depressed, then it's like, I don't want you to feel like you have to hide that from me because I live right. it. So I think right. by modeling it, I think it's just a great, great thing by putting yourself, it's like just a, you remove the barrier. 
people don't have that excuse anymore to not show you what they're going through. And so I, I think it's profound. Um, I know your wife may not agree and probably wants to hear when you're getting back to work. But <laughs> uh, Richard said, as long as I'm touching people. Right. I talked to another highly educated man that agrees with my path, babe. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great. And I think the, the high school mates are a, a great example, because if you think about your high school time together, you played sports with your boys, right? And you had practice every day after school. And then even after practice, you'd go to the little basketball hoop or you'd go to the baseball diamond and you continue to play. And then you go out with them at night and you'd find a, you know, a deserted place to drink shitty beer. And I mean, you spent an incredible amount of time together, right? So let's just say you and I are buddies now and we're adults and we have families. I'd see you two or three times a year, right? And that would be for dinner with your wife and, and we would talk and we'd laugh and we'd hug it out and then we'd leave. So we'd probably spend a, a collective of 15 hours a year together. When you're in high school, man, that's two days. Right? That's prime time. Well, 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 yeah, exactly. Well, number one, I'm trying to value that as sacred. And if I can stay connected to those, right. When I talk to my high school basketball teammate, the, it's endless. It's endless yeah. memories, endless stories, right? Because you never you get that a, again. You're probably right. You spend and, so much time together, right? So much time at, at such a crucial developmental age when you didn't you didn't know what you were doing and you messed it up and yep. you know and it's it's great and it's awesome and it's also like i mean it's just it's it's brought such joy during this dark heavy time i think the power of connection to your point whether you're going through covid or a lost job getting connected and being around others um, there's no shame in that and just wanting it yeah. or needing it just for the sake of being social um, and just for a little bit of alleviating the pain. And what I'm most curious about you and what you, what's genius about what you're, you're doing in your podcast, Joe, is, is bringing humor, right? When we can laugh at ourselves, yeah. like it's a skill yeah. I'm still working at, right? We, get, we take ourselves so seriously and we'd be so yeah. perfect. Like, how did you find that yourself? And then how do you help men use that to break the story of what's weighing them down. I had a buddy once tell me that I was bulletproof because I called myself a douchebag before anyone else could, right? <laughs> and that was kind of where the story comes from, where I, in the ad business, I was very into clothes. I used to paint my nails black. I had a couple rings on each finger, big hair, Gucci, everything. And when I'd go on stage and talk about the documentary or whatever we were doing at the time around the importance of brand communication and how social technology was affecting the landscape of storytelling. And uh, it was one of those pieces where if someone came and said, good dude, you're such a douchebag. I'd be like, I'm not a douchebag. I'm the douchebag. And then they would laugh and then we'd hug it out. And I think that to your point, and that's why I named the podcast laugh your cry out is that laughter for me growing up in a less than optimal situation humor helps heal. And you know, this as a psychologist, it actually physically alters the brain, right? So you're starting to see that neuroplasticity can be altered through laughter and through taking yourself less seriously, taking the world less seriously. I used to go by Joseph in the business world up until I was probably 35 and maybe 32, 33, something like that. And I just remember saying, I got to go by Joey. Cause that's how my little, my buddies called me Joey when I was a kid. And then I started calling myself Joey and people were like, why? I'm like, because you can't take yourself seriously if your name is Joey. 
right? I mean, you're named after a baby kangaroo. Like, how is that possible that you could take yourself seriously? And, and that was all part of this whole program. And the book was kind of the, the opus of that. It was like that moment where I captured all of my typical jokes and threw them into the book and said, hey, this is who I am. I, I've used the, the example of persona as a, a suit of armor because it's that heavy and it's that constricting. And once you remove it and you take yourself less seriously about anything, it's wonderful because you just don't care anymore. If someone says, oh man, you screwed that up. And you're like, boy, did I, right? It's, it's so much more relaxing in the world than to say, oh, no, I didn't. I will, because this happened and this, this, and there was all these variables that I couldn't control. And you're like, dude, relax, man. I was making a joke. They're like, I don't, I love you, buddy. Like I was just, you fucked up and I was making fun of you and now you're a mess. So just stop taking yourself so seriously and throw some humor at yourself, point at yourself. And then as it relates to the victimhood, I learned that in therapy is that you can, I could have based on the abuse I went through as a kid, used that as my reason to be unhappy and not fall in love and not have children of my own and not live because there was too much pain. And it doesn't, you know, I didn't want to live that way. I, and I still don't to this day, even when I became a stay-at-home dad to write the book, I was not good with that. The first year I told people I was, I have a consulting firm, but I wasn't consulting. I was writing. And uh, after a while, it was the first thing I announced. What do you do, Joey? I'm a stay-at-home dad now. And they're like, dude, seriously? And I'm like, yeah, isn't that great? And, and then we, how's it feel to have your wife work? How's it feel to have your wife support you? And I'm like, it feels great. You know, and, and that was where it started to like, they, my buddies would laugh too. It was one of those jokes. My wife's six feet tall. And they would say, dude, your wife's taller than you. And I'm like, I know. And she's taller than you too. So it, it didn't matter if you can throw a joke at anything. It just, it, it proved for me to be very therapeutic and in the process of trying to be less anxious in my life and to enjoy the moment more, it proved to be a, a salvo that, you know, I, I continue to recommend. Yeah. So which comes first or they happen together, the crying it out or the laughing it out? Like, do we have to let I, go of our story and our pain? Like, it's not like we can't run from that. Like the stuff you're talking about absorbing. There's probably yeah. a lot of men out there that can identify with some version of that. I think that it's individual because for me in therapy, I rarely cry about pain and this is just me. And it might be some protectionary mechanism I'm not aware of. I laugh all the time about my idiocy about being a knucklehead, about getting caught doing something funny. And once I laugh it out, then it's over. I'll cry with joy a lot, even in front of my little boys. If I see something on TV that affects me, like a little kid who you know was struggling for whatever reason, and he caught the fly ball that won the game, I'm done. Like, I'm just like, oh dude, you know? And, and so I have no problem releasing emotion that way. But for me, when it comes to trauma, I've always attached some level of humor to it. And even writing about how much, because I wrote the book with my brother and my father's abuse, although not funny, is portrayed with humor. It was to the point where we mocked him relentlessly. He passed away in 2011, but we, as we were writing it, we were howling, <laughs> howling with laughter. I'm one each side of the couch, just, dude, here's, do you remember when dad, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh my God, yes. And I remember, when I had to move back in with my dad when I was 25, almost 25, I lost all my money or whatever happened. It was one of my many failures. And, and my brother was living 
in my dad's one bedroom condo on the sofa bed, which is a little piece of shit uh, love seat with a big bar in it that everyone had. So you can't ever enjoy its leap. My dad <laughs> had this Titanic king size waterbed in the little, in the bedroom. So the whole place was 600 square feet and there's three grown men living there. And so I had to sleep in the bed with my dad until my brother went and until he went to grad school. So it was a couple of months that we were living all of us together. And my brother reminded me of the story where dad used to watch TV until two in the morning, crank volume. So my brother couldn't sleep because he just didn't care. And then he came in the bed naked and he opened up the trays and he jumped in bacon naked. And I'm like, dude, I'm not putting this in the book. He's like, you can't not put this in the book. This is one of the greatest. And, I, and he goes, do you remember what you said to dad? And I'm like, I, something like dad. He goes, you said, fuck you. Grown men wear clothes around their kids. This is not normal. I will kick your ass. And, and he goes, and then I laugh my ass. Off. I'm like, I remember you laughing your ass off. And that story was, it's obviously not a good story in the sense of it wasn't fun to live through, but the humor that we actually wove into the narrative was, that's the kind of thing I think is just not only beneficial for storytelling, it's beneficial for your mental health because it's, I don't want to live the trauma, or relive the trauma. Right. And for your brother to hear you being like, this is fucking bizarre. Excuse my language. This is, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry this to is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> right. But somebody else making a stand for something, somebody else amidst something that's going on going, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I may not be able to stop this. I don't have a lot of control over this right now. Right. But right. I'm speaking my voice and like that it speaks for somebody else. Um, yeah, it, it, it has an impact that we can't even see. Correct. And I think that one of the, another thing that was really neat about the reviews when it came out, both literary and from friends was that it was relatable. So it was good, and, good news and bad news in the sense that it was relatable because the book was about ne ne parental neglect, abuse, addiction, death by depression. I mean, there were some heavy topics in it, none of which by the way are atypical. Most people deal with all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I would not hear referred to as death by depression, but. No, and, and, and as someone like myself and my family, my older brother suffers from chronic MDD, uh, for your listeners, it's major depressive disorder. I don't, fortunately, on a, I think everything's on a continuum there and on a one to 10 scale, if you will, I'm probably a four and my older brother's a nine and my little brother was bipolar. And so he just couldn't ever regulate and because he was a drug addict and an alcoholic, they could never find a baseline for his meds. And, and so you, you kind of learn over a period in, in that environment that I need to do certain things. I need to take myself less seriously. I need to see the world in a different framing. And I think that that was part of you know, how I look at the world versus other, how I could have looked at the world. And I think that that's a big piece of, not only storytelling, but just kind of getting to know a better way to cope with whatever you're going through. And like, like we just agreed on, it's your buddy died from depression, right? We just, we don't, so it's relatable now to you. And you didn't have to have a family member go through that. You had a buddy and most people have lived that cousin, brother, sister, best friend, colleague, who passed away or died from depression. And then we also have numerous people, 50% of our population went through divorce. 
which means you also have remarriage, which means you also have the evil step parents, which means you also have the cantankerous relationship of step parents and kids not liking them and divided homes and alcoholism that comes because of that and cigarettes and you know yelling and screaming and door slamming and bullshit and all that stuff taken in the right context, told with the right flavor can make people feel less alone. Right. And that was a big piece of the book's goal was to help other people go, oh, I've been there. I remember those doors being slammed because my asshole stepfather did this or my lunatic stepmother did that. It was and and that was piece and parts to the review, which was like I laughed, I cried, I cringed, I cheered, I felt I felt your pain. It was so relatable. And that I think is part of the bigger discussion that you were doing in your podcast and as as well as I am is trying to broach subjects like mental health in a way that is relatable so that other people can then do the same thing. And whether they're gonna jump on a podcast or not isn't as important as if they're actually gonna call their buddy and or friend and, and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm struggling today or I'm, I'm not well. That's beautiful. Yeah, and thank you for, for highlighting the work that's being done on the academic side of men and masculinity and, and how it's filtering down. And I love that at its basic level, if you could, create laughter if you could create it you're already doing something healthy for yourself right correct how do we get what's next for you how how do we get more people to laugh or cry or share their stories are are you doing anything when covid ends with getting men face to face yeah i'm going to try let's just say that i i i'm going to go on a speaking tour in the world of media because that's where my background is and what i did learn is i don't I started doing some podcasts on mental health and, and my publicist and a couple other people that are helping me with the storytelling is like, dude, we love you. And you've obviously dealt with mental health. Great, but you're not an expert. <laughs> so you really can't, no one's going to pay to see that you're a media guy. You've told stories for 20 years, talk about men's mental health through that lens. And so what I've been doing now is I'm, I'm putting together a keynote presentation for conferences starting in, fourth quarter of this year, because some of the conferences are coming back, where I'm going to actually have a keynote presentation about masculinity and the media. And what does that mean? How does that, how did it take place through my window, right? Through the lens of Joey, of similar to the book, where I'll share stories about the book that talk to being a knucklehead based on the bullshit constructs that I believed as a kid. What does it mean to be male? Chapter six in my book is called Joey Junk Bonds. And it's, I went to an absolute horrific stockbroker firm in 1990. And I worked with 30 young guys right out of college selling absolute dog shit stock, right? And that chapter personified masculine energy at the time, all of it bad. It was just horrific what we did, how we did it, why we did it, the tactics we used, all of which were explored in movies in the 90s. So Boiler Room being one of them. I was going to say. And then Wolf of Wall Street being another. Both of those, by the way, were illegal. So they had shell corporations and they weren't actually trading real stock. We and my buddies were trading something called OTC stock, which is over the counter. And it's not regulated by the NASDAQ or the big board, which is the NSY and New York Stock Exchange. So you're allowed to sell stocks under $5, very limited on what you can cannot say. You, just, you can just barf all over and tell the client anything. And they're not huge investments. But the, the reason I share that story with you is it encapsulated everything that's wrong with masculinity from my vantage point. 
how I grew up. My father loved the job when I told him, here's the company I'm working for. This is what I'm going to be doing. He was so excited. And if my sons brought home a job offer like that, I would be like, let's sit down and look at this. <laughs> guys, do you have any idea what these guys are doing? No, daddy, let me, okay, here's what they're doing, right? It's bad. And, and you can't work there, by the way. This isn't an option for you. This isn't why you went to college. And so those are the kind of things that, and again, this is all in the storyboarding form right now. I don't have any of this gelled yet, but the idea behind it is I want to go out and do this from a top-down perspective in saying, hey, in the world of media, here's what we do, here's what we're responsible for, here's what we can do to help remedy this. And then from the bottom-up perspective, I'm raising two young men. I have a nine and a seven-year-old, both of which are men, boys, and I want to teach them what it means to be a man and not the same criteria that my father, manning up when you get hurt, man up, bub up, you know, and don't hide your feelings, push down this. It's, I want my little boys to be, well, and that's a big piece of what I wrote the book for. I wanted my little boys to know that their heroes are vulnerable. And as their biggest hero right now, when they do read that book, when they're capable of grokking that level of emotion, maybe it's 14, 15, I have no idea. But in that time, they're gonna be like, wow, dad, so you are, you admit you're scared. You admit this is wrong. You admit that you don't understand these things. You admit that you have feelings you don't understand. And it's like, yeah, dude, I do. And, and I'm still doing it. You know, it's not going to, I'm still working on this. I'm still working on being a man. I'm still working on being more gentle and more kind and more uh, giving as opposed to being transactional and selfish and brutish because that's how I was taught. Those kind of things I think are, uh, it's long-winded answer, bud, but it's, you know, Top down, bottom up. That's that's what I want to do for the next 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that's the real gift. I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted that because part of me is like, man, well, if you're we're ready to change the the world or the, the 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 media message, but is the outside world ready to change? Are they ready to receive it? We can't always control that part, but the gift of having a couple of young men at home and, and being a parent and being able to correct that message. Yeah. You know, yeah. I tell a lot of my clients, the reason I left working in crisis response was my daughter said, my, my dad works a day and a night and barely ever sleeps. That, that was her identity of me. So what you were seeing, right. What are, what, what, how are people perceiving me? How am I, how, what's my relationship like? What's the right. quality of my life like? And, yeah. and how do I want to create it so that it might be more fulfilling, right? What if we put yeah. that first rather than you know, what if we channeled our own inner hero? That's what I'm focused on doing. And I think that getting in touch with laughter, your own tears, what moves you. And I look back and I look at regrets or it's that I did not honor my feelings. I did not honor what I felt as a young man, right? I did yeah. not express maybe what I had an intuition to express. And I think what you're doing with your podcast and what your book is, is helping to bring out is, is, right? If we could just be present with what we want to feel or what we are feeling, yeah. then we don't have to wait for that blow up. We don't have to keep stuffing it under the rug. You don't have to keep hiding around in a masquerade dance, pretending we're okay when we're not. Correct. And, and if you do honor your feelings and you do bring it to your phone call to your buddy, Joe or Rich, Joey, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to call them, you know, whatever you want to call us, right? When you bring it, you're doesn't mean you're saying, I want to stay stuck in it. That's the big fear. If I, if I open up to this, if I honor this depression, sadness, anxiety, grief, then I'm going to stay there. 
you know, by honoring it, it gives it space to breathe. And then you can go about, you can get back to your life being a little bit more present with the full version of yourself. That's a vulnerable, authentic man. You know, you're not gonna, just because you admit to an emotional thing, all of a sudden not be able to operate. It's the, it's counterintuitive. When you come out with your feelings, when you come true to other people and allow yourself to be vulnerable, you can more fully live your life without holding on to baggage. Correct. And you talk about this in your practice. I've read some of your stuff and, and you have a spiritual component to your practice. And I think Correct. I've always, and I've been a very spiritual person for the last 20 years. So understanding self, right? Whether it's psychology or philosophy or theology, all of those things are kind of the same. If you look at Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Judaism, Catholicism, any ism, if you will, has maps and all the maps are towards the same destination, the destination being presence. And I think in a, as a society, we get lost in the maps. We get lost in memorization of the maps and quoting scripture as an example, as being prolifically spiritual. And because my God is better than your God, right? And my God said this, and my God was in a cave and my God was under a Bodhi tree and my God, you are like, well, cool, but isn't it all the same stuff? What, right. be here now, you know, whether it's, <laughs> Ram Das, or whether it's Alan Watts or Anthony DeMello, it doesn't matter. They're all saying the same thing. And same thing with Krishna and Buddha and Vishu. And it's the same. So what can we get there through laughter, right? Laughing Buddha. There's a whole story on him. Yeah, there, there aren't there groups that walk around India? I know there's clapping groups, but I think there's yeah. also laughter exercises, right? That's like a there is. spiritual exercise. I know in the Kabbalah tradition, there is one such prayer in the morning that you say and you laugh with a guttural laugh outside. It seems a little crazy if someone didn't know what you were doing in the moment, right? But the idea of just releasing and creating laughter, you you cannot help but feel positively afterwards. Call it what I, you will. <laughs> I think you guys touched on that. I think it was actually, and I'm trying to remember because I read a lot, I read a lot about this topic, but I think it was you and Michael Dickerson that actually said it's impossible to be depressed while you're laughing, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So that's a piece of it. Even if it's temporarily interrupting the narrative, the, the noise, right? The voice. Right. You it's electroshock it. therapy, right? It's stopping right. it. So yeah, you're not in the, you're not in the future and you're not in the past momentarily. That's why we like comedy. You know, we go to a comedy show, we have a cocktail, we laugh our butt off. And the reason we laugh is because comedians are geniuses at, understanding the human condition and why it's funny. So it's not, it's so true. That's part of why it's funny. And if you can then take that laughter and, and put it on yourself and, oh my God, I do that as opposed to, oh my God, that's, it's a critical analysis. Someone's making fun of me. It's like, no, nah, man, just lighten up. That's been my greatest gift to my kids, Joe, uh, from the pandemic is letting them make fun of me. They're around me oh. the whole pandemic. And they just, you know, they, they don't see many other people in the world. They just be like, I don't know. Dad did it again. Right? He's weirder. He's getting weirder and weirder. Yes. Right? But see, that's cool. And that's not, that's not your generation. Or my dad would never allow himself to be mocked or make fun of himself. And then further than that, my grandfather was a stoic, very serious man. Yeah. And, he it's a fine line, us. right? Because now we want to be both. I have to walk well. Okay, well, I want to be the fun guy, but now I also want to have clear terms on communication, 
how we speak to each other, what is, what's time for what, what's what time to connect. So trying to be both, uh, you know, and having that mindset, right? I don't want to just default to being the doormat either. So well, no, I, I agree there. I, for me though, it's, I'll forget things a lot. So like if we're going to soccer practice and mom forgot to put the water bottles in the backpack, I'll grab the backpack and leave and we'll get to soccer practice. Daddy, where are the bottles? I'm like, oh shit. Well, daddy forgot. And like, and then they'll laugh. They're like, oh, of course daddy forgot. Right. Because I don't, I'm not the same as my wife. My wife's very organized and, and diligent. And I'm like, sorry, afraid? dude. And I'll then run to the car and find a water bottle and do whatever I can. But it's that type of hilarity where I'm okay with them laughing at me. Converse, however, is if they screw up, I snap at them. Like, hey, 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 that's not okay. You know, it's not okay. What in my history would make you think I'm going to think that's okay? You know, and I'm sorry, daddy. There's, I'm still there. You're welcome, but When I need to growl, I can do it. Well, I look forward to doing something in person together at some point. Joe, hey, uh, tell, tell, uh, tell our guests, though, how they can reach you how they can find you, how they can hear more about uh, your podcast and, and get a copy of the book. Sure. I mean, I think this is, for my audience, this is imperative right now to hear this message and get access to just laughing at, laughing about your last year and, and, and yeah. crying out everything. We all went through so much in different ways and, and it's okay to not have it all together, even if you're at the top of your game professionally or in one area or another. It's okay yeah, just I mean, to be a... Uh, a douchebag. It is. It's okay. Well, yeah. And you know, my website is joeydumont.com. So it's pretty easy that way. The podcast is called laugh your cry out with Joey Dumont. It's on Apple and Buzzfeed or Buzzfeed, Buzzsprout and all of the different pieces and parts. I have three live right now. I have five that are coming on. So a new episode will drop every Tuesday from tomorrow on. They just keep coming because now I have them kind of backlogged and they're just typical of, you know, I interview people in different circumstances. Some it's about mental health. Some it's about men and masculinity. I interviewed a young woman named Asia Redan who wrote a book called uh, the truth about lies. She's a New York times bestseller. And I was fascinated by it because my father was a perennial liar. And so as a selfish uh, interview, I, I brought her on the podcast and we had a great time talking and I interviewed another guy, and Daniel Gutierrez, who left the business world at the top of his game to be a guru in Peru. And a very cool story. But Isn't it great, know, right? I, we get to be selfish with who we interview. Oh, man, I love it. Yeah, I love it. And We get to so meet great people. You see, I now do. have a podcast to just be a teenage guy asking another guy to hang out. You see that? Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. It's easier. You're like, hey, dude, you want to come play ping pong? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's the best way for you to jump on it. And the book is on Amazon. So, again, it's called Joey Somebody. The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. And uh, you can look up Joey Dumont. And actually, when you punch in Joey Dumont in Amazon, it says douchebag. It comes right up now. So <laughs> <laughs> You really own this tag. I, I, I want to own the tag, and it's starting to happen. So, yeah. This is like Eminem, right? In the movie, when he, like, blasts yes. himself. You can't. I got nothing well, to say about you. That actually was a big piece of the, the theory, if you look at what he did on stage. For those of you listeners who don't know, when he got up on the final scene, he made fun of himself first in his rap and then handed the microphone to the guy and he had no ammunition. That's it's exactly classic it for really psychology of dealing with change and showing that you own your wounds and who yeah. you are. And then there's no real way to poke. No. Right, there's nothing None. to, to 
dig at someone or to get under their skin because you're already accepting who you are, right? And, and it shows you're willing to laugh at it and learn from it. Yep. And wear it as a badge. That's anyway, it. Joey, real pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll have the book, the show, everything in the show notes. Cool. And it's an honor. Thank you for taking time out of your, I appreciate it. your glorious trip across the country. And I hope <laughs> there's many more in cooler temperatures. Too. Yes. Amazing. Thank you, sir. Well, that was a real gift. Thank you, Mr. Joe, Joey Dumont. Uh, I love saying it over and over. His book, Joey Somebody, Life and Times of Recovering Douchebag, or his podcast called Laugh Your Cry Out. Real honor talking about men's health, expressing yourself, getting through the pain, and learning how to not take yourself so seriously. I know I learned something today. I hope you all did. Thank you all for tuning in, supporting. If you or someone you know needs help, please reach out to me, richardlistens.com on Instagram or Facebook at richardlisten. Take care, everyone. This is Richard, and I'm out.